0: I'm being recorded. I wasn't told about this up front. I said no microphones. <laughs> hey guys. What's up? What's up? So, <clears throat> I'm John Baber, like you said, intern. Um, so tonight we're going through Exodus fifteen twenty-two, where we picked, where we left off, through seventeen seven. But I'm just gonna read chapter sixteen, and I'll kind of like summarize the other stuff. Because it already is gonna take a while to read sixteen. I don't want to be here all night, so um, we'll just. I'll read chapter sixteen, then I'll explain fifteen to the others. <coughs> Should be up there. Can you flip to it? One more. go. Yeah. All right. Exodus sixteen. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. An omer, by the way, is equal to half a gallon. So that's how much they're supposed to gather. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there was no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years. Till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. In Omer is a tenth part in an oven. Epha. water from the rock. Okay. All right. So you can skip past that. Um, and that one. All right. So I'll summarize fifteen what we didn't read and sixteen what we read and seventeen real quick, just so you can kind of get an idea, because I know you can get, get, kind of get lost in the text sometimes. So in 15, 22 to 27, it's on your sheet. You didn't read it, but the people come across water that isn't drinkable. They've been wandering in the desert for, um, I believe, three days at this point. And they're thirsty. They come across water that isn't drinkable. The people begin grumbling about being thirsty. And Moses cries to the Lord about the people's complaints. And the Lord tells them to throw a log in the water. So they're thirsty, and they see water. They can't drink it. So he throws a log in the water. And after this, the Lord tells them, Oh, and it becomes sweet and drinkable. And after this, the Lord tells them, look, if you obey and listen to me, I will take care of you. But if you don't, you'll end up like the Egyptians did. Which, as you know, what happened to the Egyptians, right? The water came down on them when they were chasing the Israelites. Y'all have seen Prince of Egypt, right? Maybe some of you. In chapter 16, so the water thing happened. And a month and a half after the Israelites had left Egypt, the Israelites say, hey, we would much rather die in Egypt, where we ate plenty, rather than die of starvation in the wilderness. So you see they're getting thirsty, and now they're getting hungry, because a lot of time has passed since they ate. So the Lord decides to send food to the people, because he's heard their grumblings. He first sends them quail and dew, and then sends them this flaky bread stuff called manna. You might have heard of it if you've heard this story before. It's like this bread stuff that falls from the sky. Um, it's pretty cool. The catch is that the Lord tells the people they have to gather twice as much on the sixth day of the week, so on the seventh day, they can rest and eat what they gathered on the sixth day. Some disobey and attempt to search for manna on the seventh day, and this angers Moses and the Lord. and they end up eating this manna stuff for 40 years in the desert. Like think about like when you had to eat like sandwiches for lunch and dinner, and how terrible it was, or like soup. It's the same thing twice in a row. And they had the same stuff for 40 years. It's crazy to me. Chapter 17, which we didn't read also, but it's on your sheet. People become thirsty again, of course, and they begin complaining to Moses. And when you know it, they say, Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt just to kill us and our families and our livestock with thirst? So Moses goes to God and basically says, look, God, these people are about to murder me. They're going to stone me. What can I do? So the Lord tells him to take a few of the Israelite leaders with him to a rock and to hit a rock with his staff. And God says if he does this, water will flow from the rock, and it does, and they drink. All right, got that? you right. All right. So, how many of you have heard of Latrell Sprewell? Just went a different direction. Probably not very many, as I suspected. No one. Everyone's giving me blank looks when I said his name. So he was an NBA player in the '90s for the Warriors, Timberwolves, and Knicks. A four-time All-Star. Why haven't you heard of him? The main reason he's relevant to me is because he played at Alabama in college. That's right. Roll tight. We're really proud of this guy. Wait till I tell you more about him. Despite these accomplishments. He's mostly remembered for violence and for how he left the NBA. In 1998, he was suspended nearly the entire season for, in practice, grabbing his choke by the neck, or his coach by the neck and trying to choke him. Um, That's not good. And then in 2005, towards the end of his career, he was offered a three-year contract that would give him $7 million a year. So his response to being offered this contract for three years, $7 million a year, was, I have a family to feed. If Taylor, the team owner, wants, me, wants to see my family fed, he better cough up some money. Otherwise, you're going to see these kids in one of those Sally Struthers commercials soon. If you all know what that is, it's kind of like the, what are those commercials about the animals and the dogs and it's the sad music? I mean, yeah, they're, I, don't, I don't remember what they're called. Yeah, it's one of those commercials where he's basically saying my kids are going to be in those commercials with, like, really skinny kids that are, like, crying and you donate money. Um... If he didn't get paid more than $7 million a year, his kids would, that's what would happen. So when we see someone have an attitude like Mr. Luttrell here, we get angry at their selfishness, right? Doesn't that just kind of make you angry that he was offered that much money? He was also given a second chance after trying to choke his coach to death in practice, and was already paid millions of dollars, and he's offered $7 million a year, and he scoffs at it, and says it's not enough to feed his family. We hear this and our blood boils, right? <clears throat> we think if I had a skill that paid me a fraction of that, I would never complain again, right? If I got paid like, I don't even know, not even a quarter of that. Like if I got paid, I don't know, like a tiny percentage of that, I would never complain. I say that I probably would, right? <laughs> <clears throat> now we consider the Israelites. So this seemingly random group of people in history that were at this point in time, If you've heard the last few weeks or you know the story of Israel, they were slaves to Egypt. They didn't do anything special. They didn't have any special skills. And there was nothing really that set them apart from Egypt or anyone else. They actually were kind of like, they were slaves, so they are kind of on the bottom of the chain. But the one thing that does make them different is that they were God's people. God said they were his people. And God sends someone, we know Moses, to deliver these people out of Egypt so they're no longer slaves. And he does this through these absurd just crazy plagues that we've heard of. Again, Prince of Egypt, throwback. We should just watch Prince of Egypt for this sermon. Um, Frogs and gnats and boils, and he turns the Nile into blood. All these things. The people have seen God do all this to deliver them out of Egypt. He's even seen them, God guided them with a pillar of cloud and fire, and they went through water, which he made come up, and they walked through, and then crashed it on the Egyptians. It's pretty intense stuff, right? So this same God, who's cruelly shown his power and just godness at this point, promises them he'll guide them to a place called the Promised Land. Then they get thirsty, and they get hungry and thirsty again, and they treat God like he's Benedict Arnold, who's just like completely betrayed them and just can't be trusted for anything. This God who just did all of this stuff for them. What was Israel's problem? Why would they do this? They did this because the Israelites lived by sight and not by faith. So I remember. Drink some water, real quick. I remember when I was in high school and a teenager, like many of you might have been at some point. I remember thinking terrible things about my parents, right? Because I was rebellious like none of you were, I'm sure. I remember one time I asked my parents if I could go to this camp with my friends, um, and I knew they had the money to pay for it. It was expensive, but it wasn't too expensive. I was like, they could cover that. And they, I asked them if I could go, and they said, we'll pay for half of it, and you have to pay for the other half. This infuriated me. This little angsty, rebellious, selfish teenager who knew, I knew my parents had the money to pay for it, and they weren't going to. Like, what's their problem? What's their deal, right? That's not fair. I got angry and said something along the lines of you guys never pay for me to do anything. Think about that for a second. <laughs> Why did I say something so stupid? <clears throat> it's one of those things you beat yourself up over years later. Like when I was writing this or just thinking about this sermon, I just like thought about this and got really angry at myself. It's like what a jerk. <laughs> I looked around me and I saw all my friends getting whatever they want and wherever they want, or so it seemed to me from my point of view. <clears throat> and I thought, sure. My parents paid for housing me, and they fed me all these years, and they kind of filled whatever need I really needed throughout my life. But they're supposed to pay for that stuff. Like, they signed up for this, right? They shouldn't have given birth to me if they were going to pay for that stuff. Like, everyone pays for that stuff. They clearly don't love me because they aren't paying for the extra stuff that I want. Like, these are the things that I care about. They should care about it too. They clearly don't love me. So why didn't my parents, why do you think they didn't just say, sure, and just like throw some money at me and just let me go out the door and go live my life happily? <clears throat> I knew the answer at the time, as you probably do too, but I wasn't satisfied with it. They did it to make me understand what they were giving me, to teach me something about money and the value of things of this trip so I can appreciate it more and make smarter decisions in life, blah, blah, blah. Right? I knew that, but I thought, whatever I already know this like I saw what they were doing and I was like come on I already know this lesson like I'm not learning anything here just give me some money I'll be on my way I won't bother you anymore about it I think it's fairly obvious I really didn't understand what they were trying to teach me I probably wouldn't have had that attitude so the Israelites back to them they've been delivered from oppression guided by pillars of cloud and fire again God and pillars of cloud and fire, And now traveling to the promised land that God told them about. And they even just sang a song. If you remember Justin's last sermon in chapter 15, they sang a song praising God for what he's done for them. And then three days later, they're complaining that they're thirsty. And they're like, come on, God, what are you doing? You clearly don't care about us. And then chapter 16, they're hungry. And then 17, they're thirsty again. In 16.3, they say they would have rather remained in Egypt than be stuck out in the wilderness without food. Did y'all catch that when we were reading through that? They, they would rather be slaves their entire lives than be hungry in the desert waiting <laughs> on God that just did all the stuff and showed them all of these things. Now it's easy to kind of be like, come on, were you thinking Israelites? But when you put yourself in their shoes, it's kind of easy to understand why they'd be hungry and thirsty, right? I got lost, Marianne and I did, along with a group of four other individuals in the Wichita Mountains over spring break for, like, five or six hours, and I think I questioned God, like, six times. (laughs) Lost a little faith myself. Um, So I get it. Like, you get lost. You start getting hungry. Your stomach starts growling, and really everything else changes. Like, you have a whole new view on the world when your stomach starts growling. (laughs) In the moment, the Israelites couldn't think about what God had done in the past, all these plagues and all these things they'd seen him done. All they could think about was their stomachs, which they felt like were start, about to just start consuming themselves. I'm sure they'd said, <clears throat> those plagues and that water and the Egyptian and all that stuff, that was so long ago. Look, if God really cared about us, He would have given us food and water already, right? Since He hasn't, He must just want us to die. We should have just stayed in Egypt. At least we had food and water there. Like, at least our stomachs were hurting. So, what was God's response to all of this? If you listen to what we just read, you know. But if it was me and I was God in the situation, I would have probably seen all the self-centeredness and been like, all right, y'all can just die out there for just being this inconsiderate and just rude. Thankfully, I'm not God, and that's not what he did. Instead, without any anger or malice or anything, he provides for his people, as he always does. But he provides for them in ways that isn't quite what we'd expect, he first has Moses in chapter 15, which I told you about, throw a log in some water to make it sweet so it's able to be drunk, drank, drunk, drink. He then tells them in 16, 16 to 21, I'll read it again. This is what the Lord has commanded, I'm talking about the manna. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. So Moses tells the people to gather manna throughout the day, to eat it through the day. But if you save it overnight, it's going to go bad. And some of them tested this. They didn't trust Moses, who's just led them through water that was up in the air. Um, They didn't trust him, and it, of course, went bad. So why would a God who could really create a whole other food group to satisfy these people, or he could snap his fingers, and they could go these 40 years without ever being hungry again. They could just have no needs for 40 years. God could do that, clearly. So why would he make them do this? Instead, God makes the people gather manna every day, and they have to gather twice as much on the sixth day because he won't provide any on the seventh day. Like, what is this? Why is he making these weird rules? Why does it go bad overnight? Just be normal, God, right? God is doing what my parents did in a way. He's teaching his people something that they won't understand otherwise. He's trying to help them. Through God's system, the people have to trust every day that God will provide. They're completely at his mercy. They have to trust that God isn't going to wake up one day and say, eh, these people are boring me now. I think I'll just let them survive in the desert on their own. They're forced to trust that he'll provide for them. So every day they eat food, and they go to bed full but without any leftovers. They have to trust that they're going to wake up and that God's still going to be there, and he's still going to give them food. He's teaching them to rely on him. And not just not just in food, but in everything in life is the lesson he's trying to teach them. Now, this may sound a little narcissistic of God or something. It may sound harsh that he would force them to rely on him. But he does this because it's what's best for them. Like, if I didn't get the money together to go on that trip that I wanted to go on, that my parents were so mean to me about, <clears throat> I wouldn't have valued it nearly as much if I didn't have to gather half that money. But because I learned what it really costs to do things like that, my life's better because of it. I learned the value of money on this trip and that it really wasn't as easy as snapping your fingers. God isn't being mean to his people. My parents weren't being mean to me. They weren't just like trying to take out some anger they were harboring towards me. God knows if the people are left alone, they'll continue being selfish and eventually guide themselves to their own destruction. He's doing this because it's what's best for them. The Israelites were completely living in the moment, but what they saw and felt, their thirst and their hunger, their stomachs, And they weren't relying on the promise that God had made to them, that he would lead them and he would guide them to the promised land. They lived by their sight and not by faith. So if you're following me up here on your sheet, my second point says the Egyptians, Israelites, and OU students. Did I put that up there? Oh, this is us. OU students are all connected by one thing. What one thing could we be connected to these people by, these Egyptians and Israelites? You might know the answer because I put it up there. But we're all connected by our hopelessness. The Egyptians and Israelites both saw the plagues cast by God in Egypt. They saw all the stuff God was doing. And it still wasn't enough to make either of them believe and to live by faith. The Egyptians saw the plagues and ended up chasing down the Israelites and were killed. And the Israelites saw the plagues and still, three days later, they're out in the desert and they're complaining to God. They already don't trust. They're doing just what the Egyptians did. And really, if God didn't step in, they would have destroyed themselves too. But God chose to save them. We're like the Israelites and Egyptians here. We're just as stupid. In this passage, we see the Israelites think back to their time in Egypt, and they wish that they were back there, back in Egypt, where they had food and water, and they were slaves. We read this and think, don't be so stupid, Israel. How could you ever think that? However... Why would they think that? Because they have selective memories, just like we do. So, we often think back to old boyfriends or old girlfriends, and we think, man, life was so great with them. If only I could go back to then, that time, that was great. Truth is, that relationship probably really sucked at the time. Sure, it may have had some good moments, but really, it wasn't anything special, right? You probably even thought of someone when you're, else when you are in that relationship. You are probably thinking, oh, this other relationship, it was so great. Or we think this about a time in our life, like high school? And some people do it about college when they get older. You think, oh, those were the glory days. Those were the best times. Man, if I could go back to those times, life would be perfect. When you've really probably had a lot of problems in high school and life wasn't that great and it's not that great in college. We even do this with presidents. <clears throat> There's a study by Gallup that looks at presidents' approval ratings while they're in office versus after they're out of office. While JFK was in office, he had an approval rating of 70%. Now it's at 83%. Ronald Reagan was 53% in office, and now it's at 64%. Why do we do this? Why do we think things are so much better afterwards? It's because it's the same reason the Israelites did it, because we're broken and we only remember what we want to remember. We think of things. Our minds are broken, and we just think of things the way we want to think of them. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, 25-26, it should be on your sheets. It's not one of those slides, but could you go back to that slide? Actually, yeah. so, back one. So Matthew six twenty five to twenty six, Jesus says, "Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Sound familiar? Nor about your body, what you will put on. <clears throat> Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air; they neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they?" So Jesus is telling his people not to worry about having food and clothing because he will provide for them. He's literally teaching us the exact same thing, Jesus is here, that God was teaching the Israelites in the, the desert, the wilderness. If we depend on him, his people, he will provide. We need this lesson just as much as the Israelites did. So us, the Egyptians and Israelites, we all think we know best. Clearly we don't. We all have our own problems to worry about. I've studied for a test, I just broke up with my boyfriend or girlfriend, I'm piling up student loans, or my favorite, oh no, I graduate in a month, I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. We can hear about Jesus on a Monday night at RUF, and feel really good and excited and like on fire, like, yes, this is great. And then we go back to our rooms and we start cramming for a test the next day, and we go to bed without ever thinking about him again, and maybe go the whole week without thinking about him again. It's easy to do this. Thankfully, like the Israelites, our salvation isn't dependent on that and what we think. If it was, God would have just killed the Israelites the second they lost focus on him. He would have just be like, yep, oh, they're dead, they're thirsty, they're whining. But he didn't. He provided for them in the same way he's provided for us. Which leads me to our third point, which says we're free because Jesus is our bread of life. So God <clears throat> hasn't sent manna down, at least not to me. Maybe y'all, did y'all get some manna in your backyards or spring break or something? Yeah, yeah, I think I fell on Tuesday. Yeah, okay. I, I missed the manna thing, apparently. But he didn't send manna down to satisfy our hunger like he did for the Israelites. Instead, he sent his son. John six thirty two to 35 says, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The people said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Sound familiar again? Jesus came to the earth. He died on a cross and was resurrected to save us. He didn't come that we would never have moments of hunger or thirst in a physical sense that our souls could be saved forever. He came so that when we cry out to God, because of need, we can be forever satisfied. Look, y'all, the Israelites, they turned away from God because they were hungry, so God sent manna to save their physical lives. We've turned away from God because we're sinners, like the Israelites and Egyptians. So God sent his own son to die to save our eternal lives. Jesus is the life-giving manna. Now, while it's true that Christians and non-Christians and Israelites and Egyptians are all similar in that we don't trust God every day, and we try to do what's best for us all the time, there's one thing that separates Christians and Israelites from the non-Christians and Egyptians, and it's God. God has made a promise to his people, and we're to trust that promise. We're to trust that he has a plan that he will complete. So, why can we trust this promise? (coughs) Because we can look back at Jesus on the cross and know that God has a plan and can be trusted. The Israelites had plagues and God killing their enemies to look back to, and they still didn't trust him. We have Jesus to look back to and what he's done in some of y'all's lives. So let me summarize what we've discussed today. First, Israel lived by sight, and not by faith. Second, we also live by sight, like the Israelites. And third, that our only hope is God sending Jesus down the cross, like he sent manna to save the Israelites. So what I have to say about this, for those of you who might not be believers today, <clears throat> I say, look, we're all broken and hopeless, all of us, but God has done something for you and for me and for everyone who accepts it. Don't turn away as Israel did. It's not too late to trust in him. Talk to Justin or myself if you want to know more about this. And for those of you who are believers, I say, remind yourself every day of what God has done for you in sending His Son and saving you. Look back to those things, unlike the, unlike the Israelites. <clears throat> this should affect how you live your life and what you place your trust in. Does this mean life is going to be easy? No. God allowed the Israelites to almost starve in the desert, and they had to cry out to God that they were hungry before He helped them. There will be struggles and hard times, but we are experiencing them for a purpose, God will push us the same way he pushed Israel, but he will also deliver us the same way he delivered Israel. Let's pray, guys. Dear Lord, thank you for this day and for sending your son and being just here for us and having a plan and a promise that we can rely on when things go tough. And just thank you for all the people in this room, bringing them all here, and for how you're working in everyone's life here, God. Uh, Be with us the rest of this week as we come back next week for another RUF, and just allow us to just seek you in everything we do. In your name I pray, amen. Is there more songs? It's one more song.